And let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This morning we'll be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. You may remember last, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at verses 13 to 16 of Mark chapter 10, and we talked about the kingdom of God being for those who come with empty hands. And now here we have a man who represents the exact opposite. He comes with full hands. His hands are too full, sadly, to put anything down in order to follow Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Please follow along with me as I read. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us your word. This is a hard word for us, Lord. We live in a land of wealth. We live in a land that is inherently materialistic. You have called us out of that lifestyle of sin, but we confess that the reality is we don't always know the ways that riches and material things still hold on to us. So as we look in the mirror of your word, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding, each individually, of the things that we may still be holding on to that are holding us back from following you faithfully and fully. Lord, we've just sang so much about your value and your treasure and your worth. And we pray that as we have confessed those words in our singing, that you would make them the reality of our hearts, that you really would be the greatest treasure of our lives. We confess, Lord, for those who love you, that's what you are, but we so often wrestle with other things that distract us. Lord, we pray that this passage would convict us but not crush us that it would convict us so that we would 
be granted a godly repentance that would lead to salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to things that we need to see in our own hearts and in our own lives that have a hold on us so that we can let them go and treasure you more fully because we understand truly you are the greatest treasure. Help us, O Lord, as we approach the holy ground of your word. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you have been noticing and paying attention in the news recently, violent and destructive tornadoes have been ripping their way through the heartland of our nation. One particularly deadly tornado wreaked its havoc just a few weeks ago in northeast Mississippi. Just a few weeks ago, on, Mar- on the night of March 24th, this tornado entirely decimated the land of northeast Mississippi. As I looked at pictures of that tornado, you could make out what looked like it used to be something like a hardware store. And the only reason I could make it out was because there was a section that was uh, strewn to pieces that seemed to be the remains of a lumber yard. And in addition to that, there seemed to be what was something like bags of potting soil all collected in this one area. More than two-thirds of the building itself was completely ripped apart, and you could really just see what looked like the front of this one building. There was another picture that I saw that was the remnants, the leftovers of a restaurant in this one town called Rolling Fork, Mississippi. There was no roof anymore, no walls anymore. The only brick that would remain standing was the brick that surrounded the refrigerator of this restaurant. You could see somehow two pool tables that remained intact. And there was a pickup truck that was with its back end on top of the refrigerator and its front end was leaning on the rest of the debris. A tornado so strong it could pick up a pickup truck and set it on top of a refrigerator. They estimate or they, they rated this tornado, this particular tornado, as an F4, with the highest rating for tornadoes being an F5. And it's estimated that the winds that this tornado produced got up to the speed of 170 miles per hour. The tornado completely destroyed the small town of 2,000 people that was once known as Rolling Fork, Mississippi. There was absolutely nothing left. And in addition to that, it claimed at least 26 lives and left dozens more in serious care. You don't have to be alive very long in this fallen world to understand that heartbreaking tragedies happen all the time. And the reality is that we have the news at our fingertips so readily available to us that it seems like we know about almost every single one of these tragedies. It's almost too much to bear. Life in a fallen world is filled with all kinds of tragedies. But in the passage before us this morning, we see what is without question the worst kind of tragedy. When someone comes face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the free offer of eternal life found only in him by repentance and belief in his gospel, and yet goes away disheartened, Because what they love more is what they have instead of the one who could give them everything. As we turn to this passage this morning, to this famous passage that most likely in your Bible has the heading of the rich young ruler, we discover that he's rich as Mark unfolds the passage a little bit later in the information that he gives. We discover that he's young from Matthew We discover that he was a ruler, most likely a ruler in the synagogues from Luke. It's a story that every one of the gospel accounts, the synoptic gospel accounts, also include, and every single one of them include it immediately after Jesus 
says to the disciples, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's a story that reminds us that if you do not come to Jesus like a child, with empty hands and a heart desperate to depend upon him, if you come instead holding on to what you have, then you will go away disappointed. And it will be a tragedy far worse than any other tragedy in this life. So let's dive into this passage together this morning. And as we do, I want to simplify this by pointing out to us two lessons that you must learn in order to avoid the worst kind of tragedy. Two lessons that you must learn in order to avoid the worst kind of tragedy. And as you have already discovered, as we've read through the passage, I don't have to warn you anymore, it's a convicting passage for a nation like ours. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not rich. I beg to differ, my friend. Maybe don't compare yourself to the Forbes list, but compare yourself to our brothers and sisters in places like China, Iran, anywhere else in the world where to simply have what you need for that day is enough. And in this land, we store up in our bank accounts, in our freezers. And it's not necessarily that it, that, that is inherently wrong. We'll, we'll talk more about that. But the question remains, what do you trust in and what do you treasure most? So let's look at these two lessons that we must learn in order to avoid the worst kind of tragedy. The first one comes to us as we see this lesson illustrated in the man and then the lesson taught to the disciples by Jesus. And here's the first lesson. If you will not give up what you have in order to follow Jesus, you will lose everything. If you will not give up what you have in order to follow Jesus, you will lose everything. Let's look first in verses 17 to 27 at the disheartened man at the disheartened man, verses 17 to 22, excuse me. Jesus and the disciples had just been, uh, in, Jesus had just been teaching the disciples a lesson in a house on the importance of coming to him empty-handed just like a child comes. And now they set off for a journey, a journey that is intended to take them to Jerusalem where the Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what will happen to him. He will lay down his life for his people. And verse 17 says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You ever been sharing the gospel with someone and it's just hard? It just seems like you can't ask the right question. You can't work your way into the right scenario in order to turn that conversation onto the gospel and the Lord Jesus? That's clearly not what happened here. This is an evangelist dream, right? Jesus was minding his own business, setting out on a journey, and someone came up to him, and notice how he comes. He doesn't walk like dignified men of his day would have done, but he runs. And he doesn't stand, but he kneels down at the feet of Jesus. So far, everyone who has knelt at the feet of Jesus has either been demon-possessed and been delivered or been desperately seeking Jesus. This man comes to Jesus desperately seeking Jesus. Jesus, defying even his own culture by running and kneeling down. This was a, Luke tells us, a ruler. And he kneels down and he asks Jesus the most important question that any human soul could ever ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Paul did not take his cue from Jesus when asked that very same question. If this were Paul, he probably would have said something like he said to the Philippian jailer. 
Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But notice how Jesus answers the man's question as the master evangelist. Verse 18 says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What's Jesus doing here? If, if, if this were a modern-day disciple, let's say somehow we could transport ourselves with all of our cultural baggage and with all of our understandings of evangelism and with all the, the ways that we've been influenced by various streams of evangelism and ideas of evangelism, and we were to get in the DeLorean and use the flux capacitor and, sorry if that's not clicking with you, and go back into time, you get it and go back into time and, and witness this conversation, we would be like, get him, Jesus. That's a softball question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Pray this prayer. You're on your knees already. Just repeat after me. Or maybe we would even say something even, even more faithful. Give your life to Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He answers the man's question with another question. Why do you call me good? What's going on here? Is Jesus denying his goodness? No. He makes a statement. No one is good except God. Is Jesus denying his deity? The very fact that he is God in the flesh? No, he could never deny himself. Jesus knows what this man needs to hear. And this man does not yet need to hear about what he must do, even though he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because if you remember, the order of Jesus' preaching is not first believe in the gospel, but it's what? Repent. See, we've lost the understanding. We haven't so much. But we've almost lost the understanding that in order to come to Jesus, what you must first do is repent of your sins. What you must first do is lay down everything in order to follow him. And some, I was going to say well-meaning. I don't think they're well-meaning. Some knuckleheads, would say, well, repentance is a work. You only just believe the gospel. Well, that's not what Jesus says. So I think I'd rather preach the gospel that Jesus preaches instead of the one that's been distorted by this corrupt understanding that Jesus can be your Savior without necessarily being your Lord. That you can somehow hold on to the grace of God whenever you need it and yet still live your life however you want in whatever sins you want to indulge in. Jesus knows that what this man needs most is first of all to have his definition of good turned upside down. This language that the man uses is absolutely right on as we read the gospel according to Mark. We know who Jesus is, but the language that the man uses would have been totally countercultural in his day. It was common Jewish understanding that you don't call people good because only God is good. And yet this man who has everything that he needs yet understands that he lacks something comes to Jesus, calls him good teacher and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus turns his idea of good on its head. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. As we continue the to drop in on the conversation between Jesus and the man, I think it becomes obvious why Jesus did this. Because the man most likely thought himself to be good. Let's continue on in their conversation. Jesus says to him, rather than taking him to the gospel, he takes him to the law. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus is reciting the, what, what's 
often called the second table of the law, the second half of the Ten Commandments, the the tablet that referred to love for neighbor. And most likely, every single one of us here at least has the capacity to be able to answer in the same way that the man does. In verse 20, he says to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, we know enough to be able to say, yeah, right, buddy. We know the Sermon on the Mount, right? That the law is not just external, but the law is to penetrate your heart. But the religious culture did not understand that. This man was a perfect cookie cutter of his religious system. You see, their understanding of godliness started with obedience to the law. Don't murder. I think and I hope all of us or most all of us can check that box. Yep, haven't murdered anyone before. Don't commit adultery. I hope all of us can check that box. We won't talk about it too much. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud, which in the commandments is don't covet, but Jesus seems to change it from don't covet to the action that coveting brings defrauding and then he puts it a little bit out of order and says honor your father and mother and the man's able to say teacher i've done all these things i've kept them from my youth why does he say that because he's been taught from his youth that what you do is what matters most Which is why when Jesus came teaching that it's not so much what you do, but what is inside of you that corrupts you, it was completely revolutionary. They had never heard that before. Now, the saints of old understood that. The the godly have always understood that it's the heart that corrupts you. And it's the heart that needs to be transformed. Just as God promised in the new covenant, I will give you a new heart. But the man is thinking within the box that he was taught. And isn't this what happens all the time? Doesn't everybody just simply think within the box which they've been taught? Which is why it's so important for us to teach our children, and they don't even have to belong to you. It's so important for the children in this church or the church that you're visiting from or or anywhere to understand from the older people in a congregation that what matters most is not to be a good little boy or a good little girl. What matters most is to love God. The man is just working with what he's got, and so he says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Notice he didn't call him good teacher. He must have picked up pretty quickly that he wasn't supposed to do that. So this man's understanding of good seems to be shaped by actions, external actions only. And so when Jesus quotes the second half of the law, the law that pertains to your neighbor and the way you treat your neighbor, the man can say, I've checked all those boxes. And we see that and read that and and think to ourselves, yeah, right. But notice how Jesus responds to the man. I don't think the man is insincere. Verse 21 says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. You know the way Jesus treats hypocrites, right? He calls them out. You hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. But how does Jesus respond to this man? Well, first of all, he loves him. Zoom out for a minute. Let's think about this. The man comes to Jesus because he knows Jesus is the right one to go to. He runs to Jesus because he's desperate. He kneels before Jesus because he's missing something. And what is it that, the, that he's missing? What's the very thing he's asking for? Eternal life. Christian, do you remember when it became so clear to you from God's spirit that you were lacking eternal life? I remember it like it was yesterday. Growing up thinking I was a Christian, 
and being being wrongly affirmed that I in fact was a Christian by all the people around me. Don't worry, just ask Jesus for forgiveness. It's okay, you prayed. You've been baptized. It's okay, don't worry. All the while my conscience was eating me alive knowing I don't think that's true. But they're saying it, so I I guess I believe them and they're older than me. And I remember vividly thinking, I'm missing something about Christianity. And yet the people in my life whom I asked about, instead of walking me through the gospel and, and, and taking an honest assessment of my own life because it was full of sin, instead of doing that, they would just give me a false assurance. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for your sins. You believe that, right? Well, yeah, I believe that. But we know Satan knows Jesus died for sins, doesn't he? Even the demons believe and shudder that there's one God. And then the Lord Jesus opened my eyes one day, a couple years after I had had that empty feeling of not having eternal life. He opened my eyes and I realized that what I was missing was Jesus himself. I was trying to do and be but I wasn't resting in the goodness of a Savior who saves. This man knows he's missing something, even though, as we've already read, he has great possessions. He has everything he needs. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. And as they say, money can open any door, right? It does not open the door to eternal life. This man knows it. He's missing something. He falls down at Jesus' feet. He asks Jesus. Jesus confronts him with the law. He says, Jesus, I've obeyed the law. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. Let me ask you, friend, Christian, how do you look at sinners? How do you look at people that, however you can tell, seem to lack eternal life? If, if you're like me, then the honest answer is, I don't always look at them the way that Jesus looks at them. Notice what, or listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, we must never forget that Jesus feels love and compassion for the souls of the ungodly. Without controversy, he feels a distinguished love for those who hear his voice and follow him. They are his sheep, given to him by the Father and watched with a special care. They are his bride, joined to him in an everlasting covenant and dear to him as a part of himself. But the heart of Jesus, Ryle says, is a wide heart but the heart of Jesus is a wide heart he has abundance of pity compassion and tender concern even for those who are following sin and the world he who wept over unbelieving Jerusalem is still the same He would still gather into his bosom the ignorant and self-righteous, the faithless and impenitent, if they were only willing to be gathered. Ryle says, we may boldly tell the chief of sinners that Christ loves them. You don't have to worry if you're a Calvinist like I am about wondering if you can really genuinely tell someone Jesus loves them. You can. He says, we may boldly tell the chief of sinners that Christ loves them. Salvation is ready for the worst of men if they will only come to Christ. If men are lost, it is not because Jesus does not love them and is not ready to save 
And so let me then just take a minute right here and now to tell you, sinner, if you're here this morning and you're lost and you're feeling like Jesus wouldn't ever want anything to do with you, like your baggage is too much, your dirt is too unclean, the reality is Jesus looks upon you even from his heavenly throne now and loves you and his arms are open wide to you and he wants you to come to him The question now is, will you? It's not the Savior's fault if you don't come. The Savior has paved the way for you. It is clear as that pathway in the middle of the pews. So I would beg you, come. Come to him because he stands ready for you. Jesus looks at him and he loves him and then he says to him, you lack one thing. What could a man who's rich and young and a ruler, well-known and well-established in his community, what could he really lack? Jesus says to him, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. What does this man lack? Well, he can maybe check the box on the second table of God's law, on the second table of the commandments, all the commandments that relate to love for neighbor. He can maybe genuinely say, I have loved my neighbor as myself, Lord, but he has completely neglected the first table and the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The reality is that Jesus in his questioning of this man and in his interaction with this man puts his finger on this man's idol and he won't let it go. Why does Jesus have this seemingly strange interaction? Because it's what the man needed. The man needed to know that what he was doing in his life, in his self-delusion of living for God, was actually nowhere near God. And so people have wondered for centuries, is this what Jesus requires of Christians? You have to take everything that you have. You have to go and sell it. You have to give it to the poor. And then you have to just kind of wander like a nomad following Jesus somewhere. You may be encouraged to know, I think, that not only in the scriptures, but all throughout church history, and even right here in the present, there are plenty of wealthy Christians. Plenty of them. What this man lacks What this man needs is not so much to part with his possessions, but what this man needs is to smash the idol that possessed him. And Jesus knows what that idol was. It's the stuff that he owned. And maybe it was because he acquired it for himself, or maybe it was because as he looked on his life, he he probably rightly thought, I don't really have anything that I need. Anything that goes wrong, I can just pay for it. But what does Jesus highlight? Not the greatness of his wealth, but what he lacks. And how does the man respond in verse 22? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You notice that Mark doesn't tell us anything about his possessions until after Jesus teaches him the lesson until after Jesus puts his finger on his idol. He's doing that for effect. I mean, you can, you can just imagine what this would have looked like. The verb disheartened is also, can also be translated, he was something like gloomy-faced. It's the word that Mark uses when clouds gather together in the sky when a storm is approaching. And you've probably seen it on someone's face before. Perhaps you, you've had a conversation like I have had where the gospel was made crystal clear and it was certain that the person understood it. 
And yet the person says to you, I'm just not willing to do that. I'm just not willing to give up what I love and follow Jesus. The man is completely disheartened. He's, he's gutted. You can see it on his face. And yet, what, what, what does he do? He walks away from Jesus. As Bob pointed out, that is the evils of sin. Left up to ourselves, this would be the way that every human being responds to the call of Jesus. Walking away. Not seizing salvation, but walking away. And so the man is utterly disappointed and disheartened. And Jesus then uses that opportunity to teach his disciples in verses 23 to 27. The man walks away and Mark says, Jesus looked around. You can see, I would guess since Jesus loved the man that Jesus probably watched the man walk away for a few moments. And then he turns around and he scans his disciples because he's about to teach them an important lesson and he wants to make sure that they get it. And at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the verdict is still out on what the disciples will do. He looks around and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And all throughout the centuries and even now today, Christians and commentators have tried to dumb down the difficulty of that saying. But we have to take it for what Jesus says. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I think almost every single one of us have wealth in some form, don't we? We need to feel the sting of Jesus' words. And he goes on to say, and the disciples were amazed at his words because it was completely contradictory to everything they had been taught. They had their own version of prosperity theology. In their system, the more wealthy you were, the more blessed by God you were. Clearly, you must be blessed if you have all of that stuff. And so when Jesus says, oh, it's actually far more difficult for those who have all of that stuff to enter the kingdom of God, it shocks them. But Jesus doubles down. It says, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You maybe have heard that there was a, some sort of gate in Jerusalem called the, the eye of the needle. And so this was symbolic of a camel having to kneel down to enter that. That's nonsense. This is what Jesus is saying it is. And it just illustrates the impossibility, the great difficulty for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Notice what Jesus calls the disciples here. He calls them children, right? Well, in context, we've just heard Jesus talking about children. Look back to verse 15 of chapter 10. I've already referenced it, but listen to this. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And yet what does Jesus call the disciples? He calls them children. They might be a bunch of numbskulls, but they've come to Jesus and they've come empty-handed and not only have they come empty-handed but when Jesus said put down your nets and follow me what did they do they did it and at this point we know it's not as if Peter gave up his fishing boat and Peter didn't give up his house he still owned the things that Jesus called him to give up but it was that he understood that what was more important than what he owned was Jesus and that's what we have to understand as Christians. It's not necessarily that you have to give up everything and go camp out on Bear Creek. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, it is crowded there. I heard that. <laughs> 
It's not that you have to do that. It's not that you have to be ashamed of having any kind of uh, savings account or a retirement account. You don't have to be ashamed of that. It's the reality that if you put that above Jesus, then the reality is you don't have Jesus. And so the disciples eventually go back to their things, but they have learned the reality that all that they have is really just God's anyway. And so rather than dumping it or treasuring it, they use it as stewards for God's purposes. And that's what we see is the consistent pattern in the New Testament. And that's what you and I could sit around and tell stories about is the consistent pattern for godly Christians who have wealth. You see it as belonging to God, and now you steward it as his. He's just entrusted you with it, but he's entrusted you with it so that you could invest it into the kingdom of heaven, so that you could make friends, as Luke says, in heaven. So that your money would, and and your stuff, your house, your possessions, all of those things, so that they would be not first and foremost for you, but first and foremost for God and his kingdom. So you don't have to be ashamed if you have a nice car or even a second car. But you really do need to consider if you need all that you have. And if instead of storing up things for yourself, if you could not just use that money for the kingdom of God. I happen to know a church that needs a new roof if you're interested. No, in all seriousness, that's the beauty of the Christian life. You don't have to live in rags, but you understand, God's given me all this, and it's his. I'm just the one that writes the check and gives it back. So, Jesus teaches his disciples about the difficulty of this verse 26 says they were exceedingly astonished they were amazed and now they're exceedingly astonished jaws on the floor and he says to them uh, and 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 the disciples then said to him then who can be saved and that is the right question and that is where jesus was leading his disciples to go in the first place Jesus says to them, he looks at them and he says, with man it's impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, the man came thinking that he could do something to inherit eternal life, and he had right motives. He had the right question. He had the right posture even. Yet what he did not understand is that there was absolutely nothing he could do to be saved, but that it was and is entirely a work of God. And so all the sinner can do then is to just cry out for the mercy of God. Just like the tax collector who couldn't look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus still saves in that very same way, friends. So if you think you bring something to the table, you've got another thing coming. Even if you have everything you would ever need in this life, you lack the most important thing. And the reason that Jesus is teaching this lesson is so that they will understand that if you will not give up what you have in order to follow Jesus, you will lose everything. This leads us then to the second crucial lesson that we need to learn this morning and it's the other side of the coin on the other hand if you give up what you have and follow Jesus you will gain everything of course Peter was the first to speak up right in verse 28 verse 28 Peter began to say to him see We've left everything and followed you. Now, we know Peter, right? Peter is the guy with the foot-shaped mouth. Peter is the guy whom Jesus referred to as Satan. 
Peter is the guy that says things that he wishes he could take back. But I don't think this is that case. I think Peter's genuine, and I think Jesus knows it. Peter, just on behalf of the disciples, is speaking up, just sort of saying, well, Jesus, what about us? That's a good question. And so Jesus gives him a good answer. Jesus says in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Thanks, you can just sit down there. I appreciate it. And for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. And, and when will they receive a hundredfold? Now, in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. And isn't this the verse, isn't this the saying of Jesus that so many missionaries hold on to? And isn't this the reality that every Christian can testify to if you've ever had to leave your home? I hold on to my cell phone number for a few reasons. This is unrelated to the story I'm about to tell. Reason number one is because with cell phones, it doesn't matter if it's long distance anymore. But reason number two is because it's a 219 area code. It represents to me Michigan City, Indiana, where I grew up, a place I still pray for, a place that I once wanted to go and plant a church at, a place that I, before I realized that I was a total idiot and needed to go to seminary, I was planning to go back to after Bible college. And yet now I don't even have any family that live there anymore. I don't know that I'll ever go back to Michigan City, Indiana to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my phone number reminds me of that home. But I can tell you I've gained so much more than that. Brothers and sisters, the family of God, That's what Jesus is saying here. Yes, Jesus is saying, yes, I call you to sacrifice. Yes, I call you to lay it all down. Yes, I call you to give it all up, but I give you a hundredfold of what you give up. You know what that's called? It's called the Christian life. Pure and simple. Which is why Jesus says it also includes persecutions. Yes, he gives us all of those things, but the reality is the world turns against you. And sometimes your own family turns against you. But you gain so much more. And in addition to gaining things in this life, you also gain eternal life. Which, of course, means that you will live forever. But eternal life speaks more to the quality of life than it does the longevity of life. If you're in Christ, guess what you have right now? Eternal life. That life has started now in Jesus already. And it just gets better and better and better. And so Jesus then wants to cement this lesson into their minds by saying to them in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And I think what Jesus is doing here and the reason Mark put this where he did is to explain that as he said in verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter and to show that it's the children who represent the last who will one day be first because they will enter the kingdom of God because Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to them. And it's the rich young ruler who in this life represents the first who will be last and will not be able to enter the kingdom of God. 
And so while Jesus teaches you, you must give up everything you have or else you will lose everything. He also teaches us if you give up what you have and you follow Jesus, you will gain everything. So my question to you, friend, is do you believe that? Is he your greatest treasure? It's not just cute words that we sing, is it? Is he your greatest treasure? I'm not a reader of these books because I tried and I failed, but I am a watcher of the movies, The Lord of the Rings. If you've ever seen the movies or if you're a a real fan and read the books and looking down on me with contempt right now, then you know the character Gollum or Smeagol who's so consumed with what? His precious. Everything he does revolves around his precious. And so when Frodo, the ring bearer, carries the ring. Gollum devises a plan all throughout to to do whatever he can. Part of him wants to help, but a greater part of him wants to take it back because he wants it for himself. Where do you think Tolkien got that idea? From the scriptures, from his understanding of sin and what it does to a person. And so Gollum then met his demise in the, what was it, the, in Mordor? Yeah, okay, there we go. Falling, I mean, I'm just seeing the picture in, of my, in the, my mind of the movie, falling down into the lava as he grasps the ring and he finally has his precious and he holds on to it as he dies in that burning lava. He would do anything and everything he could to hold on to his precious. What about you? What's most precious to you? Because if, if it's Jesus, then what he calls you to, the radical nature of what he calls you to, is nothing to you. Because he's worth it. But if you're wrestling with whether or not to really give it up and follow Jesus, look again at the response of the rich man. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions, but the reality is his great possessions had him. And so I ask you today, what is most precious to you? Let it be that the one who is most precious to you, the one whom you truly treasure most, is the Lord Jesus Christ, because he truly is the greatest treasure ever to be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your mercy and your grace, most especially as we see it in the Lord Jesus Christ on clear and full display. Help us, O God, to treasure him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.